Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We're going to cover the entire chapter today. You've given me a 45-minute timer back there. Some of you in your head have given me a 26-minute timer, according to your clocks. So somewhere, somewhere in there. Time to the Titans play? You don't know? Oh, okay, if you don't know, then I can just go for as long as I'd like then. That's awesome. I titled this, Jesus at Work. What did, what did it look like? What was a day in the life of Christ at work? He started his ministry. All of this doesn't happen in a day, but you get the idea. What, what is, what's going on in Jesus' life? And I've given you three headings. Calling, he's calling people to follow him. That call to follow him is a call away from what they're already doing. Restoring. He's restoring people from sin's curse. From the ruin that sin brings into their lives. And then he's explaining. He spends some time with those who maybe don't want to understand this or are struggling to understand this. We would call this apologetics in our day. He spends some time in explaining. So let's read Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. And we're going to read down through verse 11 for now. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and he prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep, and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night, and we have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. When they had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net brake. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they said, We filled both the ships. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him at the draught of the fishes which they had taken. And so also was James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. Let's pray together. God, I pray that through your word this morning, we would decide or we would be reminded of our decision to forsake all and to follow you. Lord, there's nothing in this temporal earth that, that comes close to the value of an eternal investment. God, help us to be like Martin Luther penned, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, because you and all that is yours abide forever. God, we ask you to bless this time as we're in your word with the church now. In Jesus' name, amen. So we think about this calling. We begin this story where Jesus does a unique thing. I guess the crowd had pressed upon him so much that by the, the, the shore of this lake or sea, he thinks, well, if I get out on this boat, they can't really get at me. And maybe it was elevated and he, they could hear him better. So he asked Peter to borrow his boat. And this is a unique thing. Peter's been fishing all night. He's been working all night. He had the night shift. And they're still not done. They're washing up their nets. They're cleaning up the mess from fishing all night so they can go home and rest and, I guess, fish the next night. And you just love it when the preacher or the church asks of you those kind of things. And Peter does, and Jesus uses his boat for a pulpit. Goes out away from the crowd, and he teaches them. After Jesus teaches, he tells Peter, let's go fishing. Now, they fished all night. And Jesus said, yeah, but let's go out into the deep waters there and see if we can catch fish. And they instruct Jesus, this is not very smart. Because we fished all night and we've caught nothing. Who's done that before? You're not supposed to raise your hand. Don't you know about fish stories? I've never done that before. Every time I go, I catch them and then they're this big. You saw that, right? Well, they catch so much fish 
if their nets begin to break and two boats full begin to like sink down. It's a pretty amazing miracle, isn't it? I think probably for sure the reason this miracle is shared with us by Luke is because of verses 8 and 9. When, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished and all that were with him at the drought of the fishes which were taken. We're, we're told this miracle because this is how we should respond before the Lord as well. He falls down and he says, You are Lord and I am not, essentially. But, but there are also many other lessons that we learn from just these first 11 verses through what I will call the call of Peter to ministry because that's what happens after this. Jesus is calling him to follow him. The first lesson that I want to bring to our attention this morning is that Jesus used Peter's boat as a pulpit. The lesson is if we will yield all of our property and all of our possessions All that we are, all that we have to God, it is wonderful how he will use them and how he will reward us. And the thing we must always keep in mind, it's all his anyways. All that you have is his. You're just entrusted as a steward over them. So why wouldn't you yield it back to him? Jesus used Peter's boat. Second, I want to point out to you that Jesus told Peter exactly where to find plenty of fish. Don't you hate that guy? Not Jesus, but the guy when you're fishing and they're telling you we should try over there. You know, I've seen some of you guys set up there. You got the fish finder and you got a GPS and you got your cell phone and you've been doing this number out there, you know. Or is that golf? I don't know, one of those. And you know right where the fish are. You've been there a hundred times. I think I remember this was Brother Harry Street. Wasn't it his thing? He could get someplace in the boat and do his thumb like this and look through one eye. And he knew he was at the honey hole. Was that right? Is that Harry or is that somebody else? Maybe somebody else. It's funny how legends are born, right? <laughs> but you've done all of that. And then the guy in the boat's like, man, look, we should be fishing over there. No. And Jesus, was he a fisherman? What was Jesus' trade? I, I don't know what happened in this scenario. Luke is researching it. And telling us about it. But Peter's a fisherman. I'm going to guess Peter had a mouth like a sailor. Is that? Can you give me some Bible on that? When he denied Christ. He cursed and said, I don't know this man. And here's this carpenter. Where's he from? And what do we know about Nazareth? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And here's this guy who, oh, he can get, oh, you... Listen, man, you could get a lot of people to show up and hear you talk, but you let me worry about the fishing. I don't know what that interaction looked like. Jesus wins, though. Amen? But I know what my struggles are like sometimes when Jesus says, Chance, why don't you try this? And I said, well, no, that's... People won't like it. This won't be received well. I've been to Bible college. I have a theology degree. This is what we should do. And Jesus proves him wrong. The Lord is omniscient. He knows where the fish are. This teaches us here, through Peter and his others, the professional fishermen fishing all night without any success, and then the God of creation saying, launch out into the deep and fish right over here, and them catching more than they can get into their boats. This teaches us that service carried out by our own wisdom, by our own strength, is in the end in and of itself, futile. The key to success in Christian work is to simply be guided by Him. Let Him tell you where to go. Let Him tell you what to do. Let Him tell you how to go at it. The third lesson we see in these verses is that the experienced fisherman, Peter, accepted fishing advice from a carpenter. And and through that, instead of a day with no profit, because that's what they had just had, they fished all night. We, we sing that with the kids. They fished all night, but they caught no fishes. Y'all know that song? Peter, Andrew, James, and John in the sailboat out on the deep blue sea. That's that. If you sleep this morning, we're going to go to that. All right, I'm going to make you stand up, and we're going to sing that together. They fished all night, and they caught no fish. Don't miss the implication there in our modern thinking. See, we go to, like, 
we went with Grandpa down to the pond, and we fished all night. We didn't catch any fish. But still, we went home, and Grandmother made us biscuits and gravy. Still not a bad day. No, what is, what is your business? Are you a plumber, an engineer? Do you own a company? Do you teach? What do you do? Well, when you're doing this, you're hoping to be profitable. And when you have not only the loss of profit, they weren't going to sell any fish that day and make any money, and they had gone to great expense. It's not cheap to go out and fish like this. So they lost money on this venture. That's what we need to understand in this miracle. See, a lot of times we think, well, worse comes to worse. We're hungry. Jesus, maybe he'll let us catch some fish and we'll be fine. I want you to have bigger faith than that. Jesus turned their business venture around, upside down. Not did they just make profit. Now, those of you who are looking at me like, wait a minute, this is health and wealth sound, and we're going to get past that here in just a minute. Because on their most profitable day ever in business, what did Jesus ask them to do? Leave it. It wasn't on their bankrupt day. It was the most profitable day ever. That's, the, that's number eight, and I'm only on number four, so I skipped ahead there. But these guys filled their boats. After accepting advice from a not experienced fisherman. So this shows us the value of humility. You're going to have to be humble to serve the Lord. You're going to have to submit. We studied this in Corinthians in class this morning. You're going to have to submit to, he's all wise and I am not. This teaches us the value of teachability. Can you be taught? God has not chosen the things that we would choose to teach us. He's chosen, Paul said, the foolish things of the world to teach the wise. Are you teachable? Or do you got it figured out and in your pride you sit around and you say, man. Usually we don't say, I'm not going to listen. We just say, I wish you'd hurry up. And I don't mean just in this setting. In the morning when you're reading your Bible at home. You're going to have on your mind things to do. Are you teachable? When you're praying, are you teachable? Throughout your days, the Holy Spirit in His still small voice leads you. Are you teachable? It also teaches us the value of implicit obedience. Jesus said, launch out into the deep and cast your nets for a draw. They didn't go halfway there. They did exactly as He had told them to do. And that's what we must do as His followers. His word is sure on what we are to do and what we are not to be doing. And we are going to have to obey it with no suggestions, with no curving, with no swerving, exactly as he has written it for us here. The fourth lesson we have here is that it was in deep waters where the nets were filled to the breaking point. You're going to have to get into this Christianity thing farther than ankle deep. You're going to have to get into your Bible more than ankle deep. Oh, everybody knows the miracle of the feeding the 5,000. What are you doing with the book of Isaiah? We've got to get all in on this thing. Launch out into the deep. You've got to launch out into the deep in full surrender with your family, with your job, with your health, with your finances, your career, your legacy, all of these things. Launch out into the deep. Faith has deep waters. And it is only there in those deep waters where our nets will be filled with fruitfulness. The fifth lesson we see is that their net began to break and their ships began to sink. Now that's at the point where good Baptists in Kingston Springs, Tennessee would say, I don't know about this. At first it was, this carpenter's going to tell us to go fishing. We fished all night and we didn't catch anything. Well, he's Jesus. The crowd likes him. Let's just go out there. We could talk to him. There's a novelty to it, right? They begin to catch fish, and it's like, well, hey, it's not an unprofitable night. But their nets begin to break, and their ships begin to sink, and they'll say, what is this guy doing to us? My net breaks, I can't fish. My ship sinks, I'm sunk, and then what am I going to do, be a tax collector? You see, this teaches us the value of knowing that Christ-directed service will produce problems. Do we still live in a sin-cursed world? Do you still have a carnal nature? Absolutely. But when Christ-directed service produces problems, they're actually kind of delightful problems. Do you remember when our little brick building over there would not fit us anymore? 
That was not easy to go through those times, but we did it. That was a problem, but it was a Christ-produced problem. Their boat beginning to sink here was a scary thing, but it was not sinking because it had a hole in it. It was sinking because it was full. It was full of money. (laughs) These are the kind of problems that would thrill the heart of a true fisherman. The sixth lesson we have here is that seeing the glory of the Lord caused Peter to have this overpowering sense of his own unworthiness. That's what we read in verses 8 and 9, and I think in that section of verses is the point. But Peter says, depart from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful man. He was astonished, and everyone that was with him were astonished at the draw to the fishes that were taken. But I don't think that has anything to do with Peter saying I'm a sinful man or getting down on his knees. He got down on his knees because he realized what he said. This is the Lord, Emmanuel, God with us, the promised Messiah, whatever he knew of it in that point. But a good Jewish boy would have known about the expected Messiah, I believe. Somebody would have taught it to him. It's similar to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. When, when Isaiah is put before the, the holiness of God, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's what Peter is having that experience here. It is the same with all who see our King in his beauty. And I think this is a true symptom of the unholiness of our society. It's even a clue to us in the American church of how we've gotten away from God's holiness and we've gotten unto all sorts of other things. There is no more falling down on our knees. There is no more crying, you are holy and I am not. Peter took it so far here to say, depart from me. I don't think we have to take it that far because Christ's righteousness has been put upon our account But my goodness, modern Christianity is not plagued by people realizing their sinfulness and God's holiness. We're plagued because somebody's fooled us into thinking we're pretty good people. No, we're undone. Number seven, it was the normal course of the day where Jesus called Peter to be a fisher of men. I mean, for Peter, this was no, no, none, no unordinary day. Christians, we like mountaintop experiences. We like big things. We like celebrations. I mean, you saw me. I jokingly told somebody in class this morning, I said, bring out my little, I got little bookends over there from the reformers. I was like, let's put them up here today so everybody can look at them. Joking, because that would have been like idols in the worship. <laughs> We're not going to do that. But I get excited about special days. But this was in the course of a normal day. And Jesus just comes into Peter's life and he shows him a great miracle and he says, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. So while you're waiting for guidance, you don't just sit around and do nothing waiting on your calling from the Lord. By the way, your calling is in the scriptures already, but I know we like specific things. While you're waiting, you're to be doing whatever your hand finds to do. You're to be doing it with all your might. You're to be doing it as to the Lord and not unto men. William MacDonald said it this way. He, he talked about a ship and guidance in regards to us waiting for the will of God. He says, just as a rudder guides a ship only when it is in motion, so God guides men when they too are in motion. You ever got up on a boat that wasn't going anywhere and turned the wheel? Doesn't, nothing happens. But if you get on a boat that's got any speed going forward, you can only turn it just a little bit, or you might, you, know, you might wreck that thing. That's no difference in us in the will of God. You've got to be in motion. You've got to get going. You have the Great Commission. You have a command to holiness. Get after it. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Do it as unto the Lord. And then he'll steer, and he'll guide. If you're listening, and being obedient to the Holy Spirit and the Word, and if you're in prayer with him, And then finally, number eight, Peter, James, and John pulled up their boats on the beach. They forsook everything, and they followed Jesus. 
on one of the best business days of their entire life. I would say the best business day of their entire life. So the lesson for you guys now is, what are you waiting for? Why are you not selling out to the Lord? I want to skip ahead to verse 27. We'll get back to verse 12. But in verse 27 down through verse number 32, we read about a whole different calling, a whole different situation. This is a guy named Matthew. Matthew is referred to as Levi here. And he was a publican. A publican was a tax collector. The, the, the Jews did not like the tax collectors because they collaborated with Rome, the ruling empire, and because they were crooked in their dealings. They overcharged so that they themselves could profit. So Matthew was probably a wealthy guy. He probably lived a better life than these fishermen did here. But boy, he didn't have any friends, I can't imagine. I mean, at best, he had a good time at the annual tax collector's convention. It's probably a really good joke to go along with that, if I could... I can get it to come to me right now. Let's read from verse 27. After these things, he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom, and he said to him, follow me. And he left all, and he rose up, and he followed him. Let me just pause for just a second. Peter's situation is a little different, but do you see how, um, I don't know if this is a real word, unpresumptuous Matthew's calling is? There's no pomp and circumstance. There's no glitter falling from heaven. There's no gold glitter falling from the ceiling, Brother Paul. <laughs> he just walks up to him and says, follow me, and Matthew followed him. Now, this is not to say that Levi had not experienced Jesus in some way prior to this. He might have seen the draw to fishes one morning on the way to work. I mean, he, there might have been more information here, but, but, but I just want to make this point to you briefly, Christian. You've already been commanded to follow him. Follow him. I think we're waiting on lightning bolts from the sky. A big boom or something. But Matthew just followed him. Verse 29, And Levi made him a great feast in his own house. And there was a great company of publicans and others that sat down with him. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, through this and through what happened next, we learn a wonderful thing about Jesus. Through the calling of Levi, through Levi throwing this party, through these guys coming and accusing Jesus and his followers during this party, Jesus fills us in on something about his own ministry, his own purpose as Messiah. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, in Levi throwing this great feast, I think it's safe for us to assume he wanted to honor the Lord. I think he wanted to witness publicly his new allegiance. Maybe he wanted to introduce his friends to Jesus. I don't, it doesn't say that. Didn't you? When you first met Jesus? Didn't you want to tell somebody about, like, come, come meet this man who changed my life? So he, maybe he's having a, you know, blow all the money party. Some of you told me you're retired now, and that's what you're doing. You don't want to leave anything to the kids. You're going to spend it all so they have nothing to fight over when they're gone. All right. (laughs) Don't forget your church. (laughs) Maybe this is what Matthew's doing. Maybe he's saying here, you know what? I got all this by unjust gain. I'm just going to feed everybody some steaks, and we're going to let them meet Jesus. Well, in verse 30, though, the scribes and the Pharisees, they criticized Jesus for associating with what they would consider to be despised people. And I like how it's, uh, how it's laid out there. He doesn't just say, why does he eat with sinners? He says, publicans and sinners. Like, what does that make the publicans? Are they like extra sinners? They're like in a category of their own? Some of you, that's how you were before the Lord saved you, aren't you? You weren't just a typical sinner. You were a dirty, rotten, low-down, good-for-nothing sinner. I'll get in on that. Well, Jesus answered here that his action was in perfect accord with his purpose. His purpose of coming into the world, this action, this having this meal with some publicans and some sinners was in perfect accord. Healthy people do not need a doctor. Only the sick are the ones who do, is what Jesus says here. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners 
to repentance. The Pharisees considered themselves to be righteous. They considered themselves to be above righteous. They were the righteous of the righteous. They didn't have a sense of need. They had no deep sense of their own sin. Now, Luke is telling us this up against Peter, who this uh, fisherman, when he met Jesus, what did he say? He fell down and he said, get away from me because I'm a sinful man. I think Luke records this as a contrast for us here where these publicans say, why is he eating with those sinful people? And Jesus' answer is, because they need a doctor. And we have Peter's illustration of just what the reaction should be instead of what theirs was. The Pharisees weren't righteous. They needed to be saved just as much as the tax collectors, but they were unwilling. They were unwilling to forget or to, to ask for forgiveness for their own sins. They were unwilling to admit their own unrighteousness. A different story in the life of Christ is where they tell about two men praying. One man goes off in private. He kind of beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But then the Pharisee goes out on the street corner and blows the trumpet before him. He says, God, thank you that I'm not like that sinner. This is the contrast we're seeing here. So we see calling, and then let's back up to verse 12. We see restoring. The calling of Peter, and then you tack on to that James and John, and I think Andrew in other gospel accounts. The calling of Matthew, known as Levi. Verse 12, down through verse 26, we get restoring, this healing here. So we begin in 12 through 16 as Jesus heals a leper. And it came to pass, when he was in a certain city, Behold, a man full of leprosy, who, seeing Jesus, fell on his face and besought him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And he put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately the leprosy departed from him. And he charged him to tell no man, but go and show thyself to the priests and offer for thy cleansing, according as Moses commanded, for a testimony unto them. But so much the more went there a fame abroad of him, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. And he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. The faith of this leper is great. I hope you will underline in your Bible his prayer of faith at the end of verse number 12. Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. He, he, he presumes upon Jesus in, in his power. He doesn't question are you able to do this? I've heard, I've heard that you could heal people. Do you think you could probably heal a leper? That's not what he says at all. He says, I know you can make me clean. He has absolute confidence in the power of the Lord. Church, we've got to be that way. We've got to have absolute confidence in the power of the Lord. And I fear something is happening in the church. If you just follow like a historical line here. We've allowed certain groups, we've allowed certain happenings. Those of us who would, would consider ourselves into doctrine, we, we like, we, that's us, we're a word, word of God church. We've allowed the charismatics to affect our worship. We've allowed the health and wealth to affect our prayer for God's blessing. We've allowed the, heal, the faith healers, the healing lines to affect our desire to see God supernaturally heal. What's next? If we drop all of those blessings that the Old Testament and the New Testament tell us about the greatness of God, and we lose our absolute confidence in the power of the Lord, well, the next will even be in our own salvation. Now, I do want to point out, while he does have absolute confidence in Christ's ability here, he does say it humbly. He says, if you're willing. And that teaches us about our relationship with God and what it should be like. Just because he has absolute power. And through Christ and the Holy Spirit, we have access to that absolute power. We are still to come at him as he is Lord and we are not. We still come at him humbly and this man does. He's not expressing any doubt here that Christ has a willingness and an authority and ability to heal. But he's coming as a beggar. He's coming humbly. He's coming with no inherent right to be healed. This is how we must come to Christ. He is casting himself on the mercy and the grace of the Lord. 
think it's wonderful in verse 13. This could have happened a, a number of ways. Jesus could have said, your faith has made you whole, be thou healed. That would have been biblical, right? Happened in other places in the Bible. And of all the guys you don't want to touch, the leper's the guy. I mean, some guys he touched, some girls he touched, some he didn't when he healed them. But if I'm going to like touch or not touch some, I'm not going to touch the leper when I heal them if I'm Jesus. I'm just going to keep my six foot. Is that, how, is that when we're safe? You sure? I'm going to keep my distance. And, and I'm going to say, yep, you're healed. Now go show yourself to the priest. But that's not what we read here, is it? Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And don't overthink that. I'm making a big deal out of something that's just a small detail there. But, but, I, but I think the implication is true. God doesn't mind getting his hands dirty, even with the filthiest of us. Spiritually speaking, God does not sin. But To touch a leper was dangerous medically. To touch a leper was defiling religiously. To touch a leper was degrading socially. But Jesus contracted no defilement. He suffered no degradation here. He reached out, he touched him, and instead of the leper infecting him, Jesus' virtue infected that leper. He's made whole. God, help us as the church to always have this point of view. Well, we don't want to get our hands dirty with the, the wickedness of the world. Well, the only way the world's going to get clean is if the virtue of Christ through us reaches that dirty, rotten, low-down, good-for-nothing world. That's twice. Try to get it in there again before we're over. And I also want you to know this is not a gradual cure. I think probably we're a little too patient as the church. We're trying to enact eventual change upon the world around us. That's not what the Acts Church did. They turned the world upside down for the glory of God. This leper was healed just like that. I think you'd know, wouldn't you? I mean, if you came to me and said, you know, I'm, I'm having some pain here. We need uh, Presley Douglas. We need to pray for Presley. Brand new mother. She's having surgery right now. Pancreatitis, gallbladder surgery. And it's not going to be a simple thing. They're going to have to do some, some maneuvering with that. But if, if you came here this morning with that and said, I'm hurting inside. Let the elders anoint me with oil and heal me. We'd pray for you. Well, you might say, yeah, the pain's gone. But then we, we wouldn't know if the gallstones were gone. We don't know. We can't see. But a leper is just the opposite of that, isn't it? Now you can see his thing going on here, and he's healed instantaneously. There's no doubt that that is supernatural. There's no doubt that Jesus is Lord, that he has power in heaven and earth granted to him by God. Can you imagine what that must have meant to a leper? He's helpless. He's hopeless. The lepers were the scum of the earth. The, the, the only assistance that they could receive was from other lepers. You couldn't get around anybody else. Boy, just in, a, in an act of desperation, Jesus, you can heal me if you're willing, would you? He touched him and said, you're healed. Now, it's noted that Jesus tries to keep this private. Verse 14, he charged him to tell no man. It wasn't like Jesus was doing something sinister here, and he's like, hey, don't be telling anybody. Jesus' time had not yet come, so he knew it wasn't time for these things to be spread abroad. But a great thing happens, and church, don't miss this. He says, go show yourself to the priest for cleansing. Evidently, lepers were, were healing over time, some way or another, because there was this process. So he said, go, go do that process, and the, the priest can tell you you can go home, you can go back to work, you can come back into the village. But verse 14 says, so much more, there went a fame abroad of him. Like he had, to, he had to withdraw himself from them because in spite of him saying, don't tell anyone. Do you see how this happened here? People still saw a cleansed leper. When Jesus changes a life, sometimes you don't have to tell anyone. If the worst man in town gets religion, I'm joking when I say that, that's what we would say and changed, changed and became something else, it would become obvious to everybody else in the town. But I fear the church has given up on the worst guys in town, and we're just kind of dealing among our own.
These people, I, I believe he obeyed Jesus. I believe he was quiet. He didn't say a word. But man, when you see a guy who was a leper and he is no more, you know something happened. Verse 17, then Jesus hears a par- heals a paralyzed man. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible. They tear the roof off to get to him. I love this. Let's read it. And it came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And behold, men brought in a bed, a, a man which was taken with a palsy, and they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him. And when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and let him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said unto them, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh such blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. He said to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy couch and go into thine house. And immediately he rose up before them and took up that whereon he lay and departed to his own house, glorifying God. They were all amazed and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. And after these things he went forth and saw the publican Levi and caught him. So get the picture. These friends care for their friend enough. They heard that that Jesus guy was around and maybe he can heal him, so we're going to take him to him. Well, we can't even get him there unless we towed him on this couch, this bed that he's on. So they're towing him on this, and, and there's just this throng of people outside the house. Well, how are we going to get there? And they climb up on the roof, they pull back some of the ceiling tiles, and they, they lower them down. I think if ever a time in the ministry of Jesus... God at work inside of his own creation, right? Isn't that what the ministry of Jesus was? There was ever a time where God the Son's heart leapt within him for joy of the faith of of human beings that he created. It was in a time like this. Can you imagine you're Jesus and you're the healer, you're the teacher, you're God come to save these people from their sins? And there's this crowd gathered, but you have to be aware that some of them are just there for the novelty of it. And these guys go to this extent to tear a roof off and get up there and lower him down. I'd have loved to have seen the smile on Jesus' face on that day. And because it's such a key time, Jesus does something essentially abnormal here. Because the Levi records for us that religious authorities from other cities had come around that day. They're trying to figure out what to do here. Is this real or is it not? Is it of God or is it blasphemy? And to answer them, Jesus doesn't say, you're healed. Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven you. Well, that just sets them off. That was what they were wondering about, and they were trying to get to the bottom of this. Is this God or not? Do we jail this man or do we follow this man? They were agnostic. They were the seekers. They were all of the things we have in our world today. And they said, nobody can heal or forgive sins but God. That was their way of saying, we don't believe you to be God. Well, Jesus, to prove them wrong. You see, it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven you. If someone were to limp up here today and say, I'd, I'd like you to pray for me that my foot be healed because I can't walk on it well. I could say to them, your foot be healed, and they might still limp out of here. But I could say, your sins are forgiven. You wouldn't know if they were or not, would you? So Jesus, to prove these guys wrong, who he said, your sins are forgiven, and these religious leaders said, whoa, 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 that's blasphemy. Only God can do that. He says, fine, get up and walk, dude. And this guy gets up out of his bed, and he carries the bed that they toted him therein home. This is Jesus' way of saying, you say I'm not God, but I'm proving to you that I am. He heals a paralyzed man. I think he could have just healed him sent him home. But in this moment, he uses the opportunity to teach about sin and forgiveness. He takes the harder approach here. The healing is again immediately, and the people glorify God because of the healing. But even more than receiving the healing, this man experienced forgiveness. He experienced the start of a whole new life. 
So these miracles then, they demonstrate Jesus' deity. They also demonstrate his compassion for needy people. But more so to you and I, they reveal key spiritual lessons about our salvation. These are object lessons to teach spiritually blind people what God could do for them by faith. If only they would believe on the Son. Do you see that clear contrast here? There were a group here who did not believe on the Son. They accused him of blasphemy. They believed that Jesus was a real person. He was standing right in front of them. Some of you are sitting here in your sins this morning, hoping you don't go to hell for eternity, and in your mind you're thinking, well, I believe in Jesus. But do you believe that he was the Son of God who died for the sins of the world? but didn't stay dead. He conquered death and resurrected and is alive again. That's a different whole thing, isn't it? It's a, it's a whole other set of beliefs. These guys believed there was a guy from Nazareth named Jesus before them. They had seen with their own eyes that somehow or another he was healing. In fact, it gets bad enough in Jesus' life that they'll begin to accuse him of using the power of Satan to do the healing because they've given up on believing that he is God in the flesh. Well, sinner... Your only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died in your place for your sins. Well, this leads us to the end in verse 33 through 39 is Jesus explaining. He's done some calling, he's done some restoring, and now he does some explaining. Verse 33, and they said unto him, why do, you make, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, but thine eat and drink? And he said unto them, can you make the children of the bridegroom chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. And he spake also a parable unto them, no man putteth a piece of new garment upon an old, if otherwise then both the new maketh a rent, and the piece that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine will burst the old bottles, and be spilled, and the bottles shall perish. But new wine must be put into new bottles, and both are preserved. No man, also having drunk old wine, straightway desireth new, for he saith, the old is better. So Jesus' revealing power here forced a decision for those who were under the sound of his voice. The old or the new way of doing things. And they, they brought it up as a thing of fasting. And Jesus threw that back at them and said, Well, fine, is it going to be fasting for show or is it fasting for the true spiritual refreshing that fasting should bring to us? The Pharisees are noticing that Jesus' disciples fail to fast. And they say, Well, our, the, the, our own followers fast. Shoot, even the disciples of John, that guy down by the river, you know the weirdo? They fast. It's funny how they'll use whatever they can to prove their argument when they need to. All of a sudden, they're on the same side as John the baptizer here. No, that's not right. But they'd used it. Jesus explained that there was a time for fasting, and this was not the time. This was not mourning. This was not grief. This was not loss. This was not a time of great need. This was a time where the bridegroom was with them. This was a time to celebrate. When, they were, when he was gone again, well, then they could fast as they awaited his return. He gives them parables to help them understand this. He talks about garments. And he says something that even we would understand, that you don't, if you have a hole in the knees of your blue jeans, you don't go buy a brand new pair of blue jeans and cut a patch out of that to sew it into your new blue jeans. We're good there? That, that would be weird, wouldn't it? You get a patch out of an old pair of blue jeans that you're going to give to the goodwill anyways, and you patch it with that. Because if you go buy new ones, cut a patch out, you've ruined the new ones, and you put a new patch on old blue jeans, you've ruined the old ones. Talks about wine. He says you don't put new wine in old wineskins. Because when it ferments, it'll burst the old wineskins. You keep old wine in old wineskins, you put new wine in new wineskins that can stretch as the wine begins to ferment there. Jesus is presenting them with this Decision time between Old Covenant and New Covenant. This decision time between this is the way we've always been doing, awaiting fulfillment. Fulfillment is before your eyes today. What are you going to do with it? I'll give you R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur here. Sproul says, Fasting 
expresses of sorrow and self-deprivation belongs more to the older administration of the covenant of grace than it does to the fulfillment form that is now introduced by Jesus' inauguration of the kingdom of God. MacArthur says those who had acquired a taste for old covenant ceremonies and Pharisaic traditions were loath to give them up for the new wine of Jesus' teaching. I think this leaves us with a great thing to consider ourselves. Are you willing to try Jesus? You can't just patch a little bit of Jesus onto your old way of life and hope that's going to work. At that point, you've ruined what was the presentation to you of Jesus, and you've ruined your old way of life. You know how to surely be miserable in life? Try to throw a little bit of Jesus into your old way of living, and all you've done is created yourself a legalistic system that you could never fulfill and be happy in. But when you'll junk your old life and embrace the new life you can have in Christ, you'll have joy that is unspeakable and full of glory to God. You can't keep Jesus bottled up inside your old religion. And I know that's a shocking statement to some of you. You say, well, wait a minute. This old religion is where I got saved. This is where I learned the Bible. This is where I was discipled. Well, what is it now? You got saved in 1982. Are you, is that it? Just waiting on, what do you wait? The death? Is that why God saved us? Is that what being more than conquerors means? All right. And what's that? Fire insurance, yes. I don't think that's how the Bible reads when I read it. Well, I'm saved. I'll go over to church enough to keep the preacher off my back. And Miss Carol. Amen, Miss Carol. Are you willing to try Jesus? Oh, and I say that and y'all say, oh, this is good. Those little kids, some of them need to get saved. I think some of those kids are in a better spiritual place than most of you adults in here this morning. Their, their wives are wide open in faith. When the Lord stirs their hearts, they're going to run to him. But some of you, you've forgotten what it was like to be stirred. Some of you, I don't know that you've ever actually been stirred or filled with the Holy Spirit. You prayed some man drummed up prayer. You let somebody stick your head underwater. You let some other man on, on earth tell you, that's it, you're covered, you're good. And you have no relationship with Jesus Christ. And that leaves you miserable. That leaves you lawful. And if you've never tasted grace, I invite you to take a sip this morning. It is wonderful. I've been trying to eat a little better, which for me means less, well, no sugar and, and no carbohydrates. I have to be very careful with those kind of things. I guess we all do, but boy, we had some Halloween candy at the house last night. Even this morning when I woke up, I was still just like, yeah, man, sugar in my body. This is great. <laughs> Don't tell me that, Rick. <laughs> no, Dairy Queen now is of the devil. But, <laughs> but Dairy Queen in eternity is heavenly. <laughs> Reese's Peanut Butter Cups blizzards. Mm. And you get it when I talk like that. But when I say to some of you, there's a disconnect about grace. You're looking at me like, what do you mean? I've done whatever you told me to do. That's what I mean. These Pharisees were looking at Jesus and saying, why are you doing all this? Why are you saying this? I mean, it got so bad for them. You remember they said to Jesus, why are you being nice to these people and healing their sicknesses on the Sabbath? This isn't what we're supposed to be doing on the Sabbath. Do you see the disconnect there? It's the same for some of you now. I love you. I appreciate your diligence to be good church people, to show up, to stand when we stand and sit when we sit. But I tell you, I'd rather be your buddy through all of eternity than right now on earth. I'd rather not be separated from you in the judgment. I'd rather see you live a fulfilled life, a life of a conqueror now. And go ahead and get in the promised land. You're wandering the wilderness like Israel when they left Egypt. And some of you, you're just happy to be out of Egypt. You say, well, this beats that. 
but it doesn't beat the promised land. The land where milk and honey flows. The land of your inheritance. And that's spiritual speaking to you Gentiles. But embrace it. Taste God's grace. Stop trying to patch up your old life with a little bit of Jesus here and there. Just get a new life in Jesus. Stop trying to to pour a little new wine into your old wineskins from time to time. That's why it keeps busting, by the way. That's why what you're doing is not working. That's why you can't seem to get ahead in life. Get yourself a new wineskin and let the Holy Spirit fill that thing up and watch how it'll just grow as you grow. Jesus insists on giving sinners the new clothes of His righteousness and the new wineskins of His grace. This is what He's telling us here. He will fill you with the new wine of His Holy Spirit. So if you do not know Jesus for sure, you should really get to know Him this morning. Let's stand and pray. I'll end with a, a word that I gave you earlier on. We talked about Peter, James, and John pulling their boats up on the beach, forsaking all and following Jesus on one of the best business days of their entire life. And I just simply said to you, what are you waiting for? Can that be our call to response this morning? What are you waiting for? I mean, yeah, I have to literally do this if you don't want to, but look around you. There's nobody new here. This is the same old bunch we had last week and the week before and the week before that. There's no, you know, the, the sinful, most sinful man in town is not here today. Well, he might be, and we don't know it. Hopefully, he wouldn't be comfortable here. This is, the, this is us. This is the church crowd. But God led us to this passage today. You heard it preached. You've experienced the power of Christ. What are you waiting for? Some of you are unsaved. What are you waiting for? Taste grace. Enter into a relationship, a marriage with Jesus Christ. Bow before Him and say, You are Lord and I am unworthy. Christians, what are you waiting for? You got saved, but you're... Well, that's it. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Do it with all your strength. Do it heartily as to the Lord. And then let Him turn your rudder. When's the last time, Christian, you've just been so led by the Holy Spirit that you've got to deal with some delightful problems like your boat sinking because there's so many fish on there. I encourage you this morning to welcome that into your life by bowing before your God and saying, bring it on. You can heal me if you're willing. The leper didn't say, well, I've heard that you can heal, so since we're having this conversation... Oh, he went up to him. He wasn't supposed to go up to him. That was against the rules. Some of you need to start breaking some religious rules. Some of you need to step out on faith and just do something. Oh, it's going to lead to some problems, but they'll be delightful. And we'll hook arms with you and we'll get through those problems together. Launch out in full surrender. Go out into the deep. Be humble. Be teachable. Be obedient. Trust that the omniscient God that we serve, He knows where you are. He knows where the fish are. He knows how to tell you to get to where the fish are. Be guided by Him. For some of you, it's as simple as this. Are you willing or unwilling right now in this moment to yield everything to Him? Lord, my house, my money, my cars, my family. Would you bow before God this morning and say, it's all yours. Do what you will with it. Let's pray.